Acts 13. Glad you could make it out. I know we got a lot of people out uh, traveling and enjoying the holiday here for Memorial Day weekend, so I'm glad you guys could be with us this morning. And I'm uh, looking at the clock. It's only a hair after 10.30. So that either means we'll get out early or I will fill an hour of your time, depending on how we want to go about that. But out early or filling a time? What are we clapping about? I don't know which one. Now we're staying to noon. So, um, yeah. Yeah, not, not sarcastic clapping. Acts chapter 13. We're at a transitional chapter here in the book of Acts. Peter used to be the main character, if you will, here. And we were introduced to Paul and some other people, Philip, etc. But here from Acts 13 on, the main focus is the gospel message going to the Gentiles. And the Lord uses Paul to do that. So from this point forward, we're really going to be following Paul on his different missionary journeys that he does as the Lord leads him to go spread the gospel of Christ. That's the key thing. What you also see happening here in Acts 13, it's a long chapter. It is uh, 52 verses. Lord willing, time willing. We're only going to do the first 12 here this morning. Because from verse 13 on, it changes directions a little bit. Paul gives this message. And what happens is, it's kind of the, I guess, proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Where uh, Paul says, listen, you know, to the Jews, you've rejected the gospel so much now. We're done with this. We're now taking the message to the Gentiles. Gentiles are us, people that are not Jewish. And you see the gospel message now spreading past just Jerusalem in that area to the entire world. And this is really a transitional chapter here as we go through that. So with that being said, we actually left off last week in verse 25. Of chapter 12, and it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, and they sent them away. A lot of information here and a lot of different names that we need to talk about. So let's break this down. First off, verse 25, you see John, whose surname was Mark. Most people believe that this is the Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a really interesting character in the Bible. He is a minor character that plays a very, very big role. And he plays a very big role, not for the best idea, if you will. He probably wrote the Gospel of Mark, which is obviously good. But this John Mark was cousins with Barnabas. And what happens is, during this next missionary journey, for some reason, we don't know why, John Mark kind of quits halfway through. So as he quits, when they get ready to go off for another missionary journey, Barnabas says, hey, let me bring my cousin Mark with us again. Paul says, no. The guy quit on us once. We're not taking him twice. Now, we usually like to think of the early church as this great group of believers that just got together, held hands, and said, we love each other and we love Jesus. They had arguments, they had fights, they had disagreements. And that's what makes the book of Acts so real. The dispute between Barnabas and Paul becomes so big, they actually split. And they don't serve together here for a while. And there's a rift in the church. We'll get to that. But this guy, Mark, kind of a minor guy, but plays a big role here coming up. Now, we're also introduced to some of these other guys. Barnabas, we already know, verse 1. Simeon, who's called Niger. Most people believe he was probably from Africa. Niger there means black, and so it would be from the uttermost part of Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, who had been brought up at Herod the Tetrarch. He was brought up in the political world, the white-collar world, if you will. And Saul... The point is this, the church is growing past this point of just a bunch of Jewish fishermen that got together that knew Jesus. This is really growing now to other areas of the world, other nationalities, other people. And you see the purpose of the gospel, different backgrounds, different countries coming together. 
And it's really a picture of what the Lord's going to do. Now, it's interesting here as we talk about these guys. They're called prophets and teachers, verse 1. Now, teaching we've talked about many times before. Teaching is what we're doing right now. We open the Bible up. We go verse by verse through it. We teach. The point is to teach you practical lessons that as you leave the church here today, you will practically grow in your walk, your your relationship with others, your marriage, your kids, etc. And to give you tools to go be a light and a witness in what you do and say. We're teaching you how to be a better believer and then to go out and live the life for Christ to make disciples, to be a disciple. Now, prophecy... This is something a little bit different. Most of the time when we think of prophecy, we think of telling the future, which is true. That's one element of being a prophet. But there's another element of being a prophet. It means to speak forth for God. It means that you get to be God's mouthpiece and you get to speak for the Lord. That's a pretty big statement to say. You know, the good old King James, it would be the classic, thus saith the Lord. That means you're a prophet. You're speaking forth for God. Quite an honor, quite a privilege, but also quite a responsibility. Because if you're going to say that God said this, you better make sure God said this. Because if he didn't say it, and you say, thus saith the Lord, you're really misrepresenting the Lord. Now, the way they took care of that in the Old Testament is very easy. They stoned false prophets. It really weeded out. We don't have that today. So since we don't have that today, this false prophecy stuff is all over. I'm not saying bring back stoning, but it would really weed out some of the people out there. This stuff is all over. I I was looking up something yesterday. I was reading an article, and the guy made reference to this guy, and I'm not even going to mention his name, not to even give him credit, but he's Jesus, and he's returned, and he set up a Facebook page. So I went to his Facebook page. As I'm on his Facebook page, I, I don't have Facebook, but I'm on his Facebook page. I can't, but he's, he's, it's Jesus. He's Facebooking people. Jesus. And they have a picture of him. And boy, he looks just like Jesus. He's white, because we all know Jesus was white, obviously, even though he's Middle Eastern. Beautiful beard, long hair. He's wearing a white robe with a blue sash. It has to be Jesus. And here Jesus is on Facebook. He's also made YouTube videos. And I thought... That's exactly what I want my Savior to do when he comes back, is to get on face. First thing he does is make a Facebook account. But they're all over the place. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, because if you remember when Jesus talked about end times, one of the things he says is, you're going to hear that I'm here. You're going to hear that I'm in the wilderness, and people are going to chase me into the wilderness. No, you're going to hear that I'm over here. It's false prophets. If you want to kill time one day, if you go to Wikipedia, there's a whole page of people that claim to be Jesus living today. There's hundreds of Jesuses today. They're all false prophets. It is so important for us to understand what this gift of prophecy is, what it means, what it represents, and understanding the background of it. It's a beautiful gift. Foretelling the future events, that's part of it, but also speaking forth for the Lord. Now, here's a couple things when it comes to the gift of prophecy, because this is an important gift. 1 Corinthians 14, if you want the background on this, the first thing is it is a gift. I I see Christians that want to be prophets, and they almost like something that they obtain. You can't obtain it. Either you have it or you don't. It's a gift. Number two, it's a gift that does comfort and exhortation, the Bible says. Now, this is important. Prophecy is a gift that does comfort and exhortation. It edifies the church. It builds you up. I see people that claim to be prophet, and they're not comforting. They're not exhorting. They're standing on the street corner condemning. That's not prophecy. That's misrepresenting the Lord. 
Prophecy is comfort and exhortation. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't speak truth. See, here's the problem. We look at comfort and encouragement, and we feel that that can't speak truth. Like, I can't call sin, sin, because you're picking on people. No. Sometimes the most encouraging thing I can do in your life is to say, that's a sin that's going to hurt you. So, comfort and exhortation. Next one, it's for believers. According to 1 Corinthians 14, prophecy is for believers to build us up. Here's the key one. It must line up with Scripture. It must. If someone claims to be a prophet and they start saying things that are not biblical, they are not speaking forth for God. How do I know that guy with the Facebook page isn't Jesus? Because what he's saying is not lining up with Scripture. Here's the problem. A lot of false teaching, a lot of false prophecy is about 90% good. It's that last little 10% that pushes it over the edge. John wrote in 1 John 4, you don't need to turn there, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just because someone has a TV show or a radio show, just because they stand up behind a pulpit, hold a Bible in their hand and say, Thus saith the Lord, doesn't make them right. We are responsible as Christians to make sure is what they're saying lining up with God's word. We have a responsibility for that. If it does not line up with God's word, we need to ignore it. We need to push it off to the side because it's not of the Lord. I believe too often as Christians, too often as Christians, we just accept what people say is truth. Check it out yourselves. Check out what I say. Check out whoever else is teaching out here. Does it line up with scripture? Does it match up? If it doesn't, that's a huge warning sign. And be careful. So, must line up with scripture. And here's an important one according to 1 Corinthians 14. It's orderly. When the gift of prophecy is used, it's done in order. One person gets up and speaks, then another person gets up and speaks. I've been in churches before where it was not done in order in any way whatsoever. That's not of the Lord. It's not. This gift of prophecy, telling the future, speaking forth for the Lord, but it is a gift. It's comforting. It's an exhortation, encouraging. It's for believers. It must line up a scripture, and it must be orderly. Just because you run into someone who says, I'm a prophet, be careful with that. Make sure it lines up with God's Word. That's why it's so vital for us as Christians to know the Bible. To know the Bible. Because that way when someone teaches something that's not true, automatically our Holy Spirit radar goes off and says, that's not right. I know that's not right because I know what the Bible says concerning that. Beautiful gift, wonderful gift. And you see it being used a lot, especially in the early church. Because think about this. Someone comes up to me today. And they have a question about something, fill in the blank, be it, I, I don't know, you know, tithing, be it tongues, be it giving, be it whatever. Okay, well, let's go see what the Bible says. We go open up 1 Corinthians. We go open up the book of James, etc. New Testament, they didn't have it. So you see that role of prophets being used much more often. Now, next thing you see here is the prophets and the teacher. You see them in verse 2, verse 3, fasting. Fasting is one of the most simple concepts in the Bibles, but yet for some reason we complicate it. They were fasting. Fasting just means that you choose to forego the physical pleasures of eating and spend that time spiritually with the Lord. So instead of going home and eating lunch, that half hour you would have spent eating, or maybe that hour you would have spent eating and preparing, you stop and you say, I'm just going to go spend that time in prayer and in the Word with the Lord. So I'm going to let go of my physical and focus on my spiritual. I'm going to build my spiritual body up instead of focusing on the physical. Now, it's such a simple concept. But it's so difficult to do. We like to eat. We look forward to eating. I know people, as soon as they get done with breakfast at 8.30, they're already looking at the clock going, I can start eating again in four hours. 
their life revolving. And fasting sounds so simple. I'm going to fast over lunch. So I'll get up and I'll eat my Cheerios at 8.30. And I'll get around to lunch. And you're feeling spiritually strong. So at noon you sit down, you fast, you pray. And you get done. It's 1 o'clock. And you look at the clock. It's like, I can't eat again for five hours. It's tough to fast. I've shared this story with you before, so forgive me for repeating, but I think it's important to note. I remember the first time that I ever really experienced fasting as a Christian. We were having a Friday night study in our house over at McClure, and there was a guy that was coming. We had quite the eclectic group of people that came to the Bible study, and this guy came. I don't even remember what it was, but they called for a fast. And so we all sat there Friday at the study and say, okay, fine, we're all going to fast on Saturday. I don't even know why we did, but we were all going to fast. So Dawn and I got up, we were married, and said, okay, we fasted over breakfast. Now, I've got to be honest, it's pretty easy to fast over breakfast. Okay, so you fast over breakfast. And we had to go to Walsion for some reason. So we went to Walsion, and as we got to Walsion, it's now lunchtime. Now, we had fasted over breakfast. We get to Walsion, we're doing something around Walsion, and we were around those fast food restaurants in Walsion, and the only thing you could smell was grease. <laughs> grease smells so good. Heaven will smell like grease. You know, so you just... <laughs> And so we sat there and we had this little conversation amongst ourselves saying, well, we did fast today. We did fast over breakfast. And we really don't even know why we're fasting. We're just kind of fasting to fast. So we went and ate lunch. And I remember that I've never gotten so sick in my life. So it really taught me at that time, what does it mean to fast? What is, what is the seriousness of it? Fasting is a time where you just are maybe overwhelmed by something. Maybe you have a big decision coming up and you don't know what to do. I mean, yeah, you're praying about it, you're seeking the Lord on it, but there's this time where you're like, I, I really need to even focus more on this. So the time that I would have spent eating, I, I'm just going to let that physical food go, and I'm going to spiritually spend this time with the Lord and say, Lord, give me wisdom, give me guidance, give me direction. It's not a legalism. Be careful. Don't look at it as, Lord, look at me. I was willing to let go of food, so you now you look at me, Lord. Look at what I'm doing for you. You have to answer me. No, it's more like, Lord... I want to spend so much time with you that I'm willing to let go of the food to even just to sit in your presence. Maybe there's someone really heavy on your heart. Maybe, maybe your marriage, maybe kids, grandkids, a loved one, and you're just so overwhelmed by what they're going through. You fast over a meal and just say, Lord, I really want to give this person to you. Maybe you really need to seek wisdom. So, Lord, I want to give this situation to you. Maybe it's just preparation. Maybe, you know, there's a big week coming up. And you know you got something big at the end of the week. Lord, I want to be spiritually ready and prepared for this. I'm going to spend some time in fasting for this. You know, anytime I have a big counseling appointment or a big meeting, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I usually fast over that beforehand to say, Lord, I just want to spend this time in prayer to really prepare myself for what's coming up. That prayer of preparation. You know, we took a few days off a couple weeks ago, and I was getting ready to turn my phone back on. You have this moment of, okay, I don't know what emails are waiting for me. I don't know what texts are waiting for me. I don't know what voicemails are waiting for me. So I want to spend this time in prayerful preparation before I even turn that phone on to say, what is it, Lord? I had a lot of things going on today. And so, you know, you spend this time in the morning fasting and prayer saying, Lord, I, I don't know who's going to ask me something today. I don't know who's going to be here. I don't know who's not. Lord, I want to be prepared for whatever is coming this morning at church. So you fast and you pray. Preparation. Maybe there's a situation specific. Maybe it's a prayer of preparation. You see with these guys right here, verse 2, they're fasting and praying, and that's when the Lord speaks to them. Do you ever wonder maybe why the Lord's not speaking to you? Let me ask you this. Are you opening yourself up through fasting and prayer to have the Lord speak to you? 
And then as they feel the Lord's leading, verse 2, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3, they fast and pray again. So the first fasting and prayer is a prayer of preparation. Lord, what do you want of us? The second one in verse 3 is now a confirmation. Now we're going to pray and fast to confirm what the Lord has called. I'm just going to be honest with you, church. We're weak when it comes to the areas of fasting and prayer. We really are. It's something that we really, we have this amazing tool Dare I say this amazing weapon in our arsenal, why don't we use it more often? Jesus, when he was talking about fasting in Matthew 6, he had a really interesting word. He said, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast. He says, don't make a big deal out of it. Just do it. Grow in your walk with the Lord. When you fast. He also gave the example of Anna in Luke chapter 2. Here's this gal that her ministry was a ministry of fasting and prayer. That's what her ministry was. I'll have people come up to me and say, physically, I can't do this. Time-wise, I can't do this. Well, then maybe your ministry is a ministry of fasting and prayer. Where you're going to fast and pray over the church. Maybe it's one meal a week. Maybe it's a couple days a week. I don't know what it is. Let the Lord lead there. Sometimes I think we see ourselves almost becoming a competition. Well, I fasted for a day. I fasted for two days. I don't care. Keep your mouth shut and just pray. It's between you and the Lord. So, there's a ministry there of doing it. And there's a ministry of preparation. I want to stress this point again to you. Again, sometimes you're fasting for things to prepare for what's coming that you may not know about. Jesus gave this example. They were trying to cast out demons in Matthew 17. And Jesus said, this demon only comes out by fasting and prayer. Now, what are you supposed to do with that? So, here you are back in Bible times. And here's this guy that shows up and says, hey, my friend's got a demon. Oh, that one only comes out by fasting and prayer. This is what I'll do. I'll skip lunch and supper tonight and breakfast, come back at noon tomorrow. They'll give me three meals to fast over, then I'll pray out. No. The point that Jesus is trying to make in that passage is you never know what you're going to run into, so you have moments of fasting and prayer to prepare for things you don't even know are coming. You can have reactionary fasting and prayer. This situation is heavy on my heart. This person is, this marriage, this relationship. Boom, I will fast and pray. But you can also have times of just preparation of, Lord, I don't know what's coming this week, but I want to be spiritually prepared for you. One last point I want to say about this. I don't want to pick on anybody when I say it, so I'm not singling anybody out in my mind or anything. I see too many times as Christians making huge life choices, not based in fasting and prayer. They make choices like um, what relationship to be in, what relationship to end, what job to take, what job to leave. You know, all these big decisions, what house to buy, what house to sell. And it's not covered in fasting and prayer. It's covered in their own wisdom and intellect and, dare I say, maybe a little bit of a rubber stamp prayer. This sure sounds good. This sounds like what I like. This sounds like what I want, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, please. The more I study the Bible, the more I realize I am nothing. James chapter 4 says that we're just a vapor that appears for a little while. That word vapor literally means morning fog. You get up at 7 o'clock, it's foggy, it's gone by 10. Who am I to determine anything with my life? But here's the problem. I, I think I know something. I think this is good for my family. Based on what? Well, my wisdom. I think this is good for my life. Based on what? Well, this is what I think. The more you study the Bible, the more you realize we know nothing. And I don't want to repeat myself, but I am. You see these people make big life choices, and you want to stop them and just say, did you, did you pray about this? 
I mean, is this, this is where you feel the Lord is leading you. And this is what I do. If somebody comes up to me and makes a big decision, and it doesn't seem like it just makes sense, I'll just simply ask them, that's where the Lord has led you? You, you prayed and fasted over this, and I just want to confirm, as your pastor, as your friend, as your brother in the Lord, this is where the Lord has led you. And if you say yes, I'm setting you up. Because if you say yes, you're saying, thus saith the Lord. Make sure on those big decisions. Look at Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We know these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, that one I think we get. Trust in the Lord with all my heart. Lean not on your own understanding. How many times have you said something? I, I think I can make this work. We can make this work. We'll do this and we'll do this. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do these hours over here at work. Okay, we'll do this with the kids and we'll do this. And we lean on our own understanding. We can make this work. This tells me not to lean on my own understanding. Verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Verse 7 is the key. Do not be wise in your own eyes. We make decisions based on what we think is right. We make decisions based on what our wisdom shows us. We make decisions based on what fits into our life. And we allow the emotion of the situation to guide us rather than the Lord. Because truth be told, this is how the teaching thing works out here. And I'm just telling you right now, because I've been doing this now for 20 years. This is going to pop up this week. It's either going to be in your life or somebody else's life. And as it pops up in your life, you're going to have to stop and say... Am I doing what Pastor James said? Am I just giving this token little prayer? Did I even pray about it? Did I even really seek the Lord? I mean, did, did me and my wife really stop and fast and pray over this, that this is what's best for us? Or did we just do it? Did you lean on your own understanding? Were you wise in your own eyes? Because if you do, that's going to come back to bite you later on. Or you're going to run into somebody, and they're going to say that they did something. And you're going to have a check in your spirit and you're going to say, I, that just doesn't sound like something the Lord would want of them. And you're going to put yourself in a position where you're going to have to say, is that what the Lord wants of you? I mean, did, did, did you fast and pray over that? Because it's not a con- condemning attack. It's not an attacking statement at all. It's, did you really seek the Lord on this? How do we know that Paul and Barnabas were sent out to do this? They spent time in fasting and prayer and were ready for it. And when the Lord said move, they confirmed it again. I just encourage you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, do not make those big choices in life about anything without truly seeking the Lord. If you're married, you grab your spouse's hand and you say, we're going to pray over this before we do anything. We're going to seek the Lord together in that. Jump back now to Acts 13. So, fasted and prayed, felt led. Fasted and prayed, confirmed it. One last point on this, and then we move on, verse 2, is they minister to the Lord. Some of your translations said, as they worshipped. Isn't that neat? Fasting and praying and worship and ministering, it's all combined together. Worship is a form of ministry to the Lord. I'm willing to serve the Lord in worship because of what He's done. I encourage you as well, too, if you're in a tough spot in life right now and you don't know where the Lord's leading you, look at the tools God has given us. He's given you fasting. He's given you prayer. He's given you ministry and worship. This happens all the time. Somebody is struggling in life, and they're just feeling down in the dumps. So they come to me, and my question I always ask them is, where are you serving at? And they always say, serving? I'm not in a spot to serve. How could I serve? How could I even think about that right now? Because that's what the Lord asks of you. It's to serve through the difficult times. Too often we base our service to the Lord on our lives. Work is busy, can't serve. Life is busy, can't serve. This is going on, can't serve. 
That's not based on you. It's based on the Lord. If the Lord has called you to service, he'll provide the time, the energy, and the resources to do it. So they're worshiping. They're fasting. They're praying. They get hands laid on verse 3. They're sent out. Let's look at this missionary journey, verse 4. So being out by the, sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Look at this. Fasting, praying, sent out. Everything is coming together, preaching the word. Verse 6. Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. That literally means son of Jesus. Who was with the proconsul, Sergius Phallus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, the name Elymas means wise man, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here's the setup, guys. Paul and Barnabas are going. They're preaching. This guy here, Sergius, verse 7, hears about their preaching and says, I want to hear about this. Hey, Saul, Barnabas... Come here and fill me in. Now, there's this guy, Bar-Jesus, who's a sorcerer, and he realizes he's got the government's ear with this Sergius guy. And so he realizes if Paul and Barnabas come in, he's going to lose his position. So what does he do? He kind of starts to go the opposite way. He starts to withstand them, verse 8. Depending on your translations, he interfered, he opposed, he did what he could to stop. Now, what does this show? Sometimes you are praying and fasting and seeking the Lord, being prepared for a battle that you don't even realize is coming. We as Christians have, have lost this idea of it's a battle. Did you realize that? Ephesians 6 says it's warfare. But yet as Christians, we're just dancing through the daisies, loving Jesus, and people are shooting at us. It's warfare. We need to have our shield, our sword. We need to be prepared for this battle. And what happens is we have this mindset of, I'm just going to go out and love Jesus. And then you get hit and you come back crying, saying, I never knew it was like this. God loved you and then you never read the Bible. Because this is what happens. You're going to go out and spread the gospel, verses 4 and 5, amen, but then you're going to run into bar Jesus. That's what the enemy does. You sit here and you say, I want my marriage to be different. Amen. You move forward. Guess what happens? The enemy pushes back. You decide today that you're going to go into work tonight or tomorrow and it's going to be different. You're going to be a light. You're going to be a witness. You get in there tomorrow. Guess what happens? The enemy pushes back. This is, this is the system that we in. It is a battle. It is warfare. And for some reason as Christians, we don't get this. This to me shows more than ever the importance of fasting and prayer and seeking the Lord and being in the Word because I need to be ready and prepared for this because we are going to get attacked. Now, the enemy is the enemy, not the person. We've got to remember this. So often we run into that co-worker at work and we think they're the enemy. No, they're just being used by the enemy. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against other humans, but against the principalities, the power behind them. This is the only point you get out of the message today, is realize that anytime you want to grow in the Lord, there's going to be pushback. There is. Do we really think that Barnabas and Paul were just going to travel the area and tell people about Christ? There's going to be hits left and right. That's why you're prayed up, that's why you're fasted, and that's why you're ready. You're ready for this battle that is coming. Here's the problem. As Christians, when that battle comes, what are you going to do? If you're being attacked, that shows you're on the right path. Why is it when we're attacked, we retreat? 
Ever seems like it doesn't seem like as Christians we're always retreating. Always retreating. And I don't understand this. Aren't we supposed to be the ones that are victory in Jesus? Look at Paul's response to this guy. Verse 9, Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you all enemy of all righteousness, with you, excuse me, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind. Not seeing the sun for a time and immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. I love verse 10. O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? That's the verse we need to put on our fridge. Just memorize that verse. Wouldn't you love to use that one time? Seriously, would you just not love one time at work, somebody comes up and you just look at them, you son of the devil. You're perverting the way of truth. You are full of deceit. I mean, would you just love it? See, this is what happens for us, though. Verse 9. And then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Oh, Bar Jesus, I don't want to fight. Just, you, 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 I'll just back away. And then we tell Sergius, you know what, think about what I said. Then if you got something you want to talk about, call me. We back down. And the enemy knows that. You want to go into work and you want to be a light and a witness. So therefore, you got this one person at work that's not going to back down. So what happens is, we know truth and we back down. Maybe we need to be the ones at the lunch table saying, you know what, the enemy is using you. Wow, we can't do that because as Christians, we're love, we're grace, we're mercy. We're also truth, exposing the works of darkness. It seems too often as believers, we're walking in cowardice defeat. When really we know the battle. We know who wins. We we use this example out here all the time. The, The Bible says, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Gates are are, are defensive. No one goes into battle saying, hey, grab me a gate. Gates are defensive. We're attacking. But it seems like as the church is, is, is growing here in the 21st century, I hope, it seems like we're more defensive. We just watch ourselves lose ground where maybe spiritually we need to say, no, that person's the son of the devil. That's fraud. That's deceit. That's perversion. I love them, but I'm not putting up with that. We're gonna, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and say, this is what I feel for me and my family right now. And, and we see ourselves backing down. What happens in verse 11? This guy is put into blindness. I wish I had that spiritual gift. Wouldn't you just love to blind anybody who goes against the gospel? It's a representative of a spiritual blindness. That's what it's supposed to be. Because you've got to remember this idea of darkness around us. Stay here in Acts and go to Acts 26, please. Acts 26. Let's talk about this idea of spiritual blindness. I know people, it seems like they're walking around with a dark mist around them all the time. The spiritual blindness that's going on. Now, in Acts 26, you have Paul recounting his conversion of when he got saved. And he he quotes Jesus here. And this, this statement of Jesus is just an amazing statement. It's like the mission statement of Christ. Verse 17 of Acts 26. Jesus speaking, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom now I send you. Look at verse 18. To open their eyes, excuse me, to order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's the goal, verse 18. Their eyes are open, they're turned from darkness to light, the power of Satan to God. That's the goal. This is what I do. If you have a loved one that's not saved, 
I take their name and I put it right in this verse. And I just pray this verse for them. Let's just say there's somebody named Fred, not saved. Lord, I pray for Fred that his eyes are open, that his eyes are turned from darkness to light, that Fred would turn from the power of Satan to God. That's a powerful passage there of Jesus. But instead, we as Christians, when we run into the power of the enemy, we deflate, we're defeated, and we retreat. I don't get that. Paul didn't back down. I think as believers, we need to make sure we're ready for the fight that's coming. And I don't think we are sometimes. Ephesians 6, if you're looking for something to do for devotions, I encourage you to go read Ephesians 6. It talks about the armor of God that you're supposed to be on, put on every day when you go into battle for the Lord. It's a fight. We talked about this idea of prayer and fasting. You don't know what's coming up this week. Time to fast and pray to be prepared for what the Lord has coming at you. Be ready. It's going to be a battle. You know it. Be ready for it. Maybe you have big decisions. Fast and pray over it. Maybe there's someone really hurting. Fast and pray over them. Or you're going to run into somebody this week who's making a big choice. And it's not wrong to say, is the Lord really leading you this way? Is the Lord really leading your family this way? Because that, that, that's a big thing. Fast and pray over it to make sure they're seeking the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. We see Paul and Barnabas here being used by God. And how do we know they were used by God? Because they were spiritually ready. They were spiritually prepared. And when the Lord called them, they confirmed that calling with the Lord. If you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Sounds like a great time to fast and pray. Or I think I know what I'm supposed to do. I feel the leading, but I want to confirm it. Sounds like a great time to fast and pray. It's an amazing tool. It's an amazing weapon that God has given us. And that's what the Lord uses for us. Last thing I'm going to say These names are amazing names. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menin, Saul. And I think it's important that we note here, Saul had a name change in verse 9. One thing I love to study when I study the Bible is what these names mean, what they represent. Barnabas, back up in verse 1, means son of rest. Lucius means bright, shining light. Simeon means hearkening. Menin means comforter. And Saul means desired. Now think about that. Put all those names together there up top. We talked about prophecy, the gift of being a prophet there, of comfort, encouragement, etc. Their names represent that perfect, purposely. Excuse me, perfectly. The Lord wants to do this for you. He wants to give you rest and comfort, Barnabas and Menin. He wants to show you the light, Lucius. He's calling for you, he's hearkening for you, Simeon, and he desires you, Saul. And I think it's so important when we see those names. That's a perfect picture of Christ desires us, calls for us, wants to bring us out of darkness into light to comfort us and give us rest. And then one more name here as you go down to verse 9. Saul, who's also called Paul. Saul means desired. Paul means little. So Saul was desired of God. God wanted a relationship with Saul. Got him salvation. And then Paul was humbled to know who he was and he was now made little. That's what the Lord wants to do with us. I mean, think about this. He wants to pull us out of darkness He wants to do that. I mean, look at your life real quick. Verse 10. I hope you're not walking in deceit, fraud. Some of your translations say mischief, trickery. You're not walking in perversion. You're not walking. I hope not. God wants to call you out of that, out of darkness, into the light. Oh, what a beautiful thing that is. Last passage I'm going to share here is because this is what we used to be. We used to be darkness. I mean, think back to your times that before you got saved. It was darkness. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 this, You were once darkness, but now you are light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
Do you feel your light and your witness for the Lord is shining bright? Walk in that, in your marriage, in your relationship with others, with your kids at home, wherever it is. Walk in that light and shine for the Lord. Because it's a battle, guys. You're going to go into battle this week. You know that. Don't be shocked by it. Don't be surprised by it. Get your armor on. Be prayed up. Be fasted. Seek the Lord on this. And be prepared for it. And make sure whatever decisions you make, did I seek the Lord? Or did I, was I wise in my own eyes? Did I plan this according to my own ability? Did I do this because this is what I want? Or is it what the Lord wants in you? God will lead and guide you. Marvin, come forward here for the final song.